episode to episode i am joe gastano hello there and uh, joining me as usual is ed davis how are you going all right yeah i'm doing all right how are you today yes i'm okay i'm in the the kind of rigors of moving house and it's all kind of stressful and i'm surrounded by boxes and um packing stuff and i've got way too many dvds i've realized i need to get rid of them all and go completely digital um which is an interesting point considering what we're talking about this week do you see that segue i did ed it was amazing that was fantastic. That's the kind of segue that goes smoothly along and doesn't fall off a cliff. Exactly, and, like the segue. inventor of the segue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever seen that video on YouTube of the chimp on a segue? Uh, yes. Yeah, I could watch that for weeks. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's not the theme of this week's podcast. Uh, the theme of this week's podcast is distribution. Uh, we're talking about the way in which distribution has changed or uh, is changing and the kind of uh, whether the old model of distribution is legitimate and whether what ideas for the future there are. What 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 are we faced with? Uh, we're told constantly that this part of the industry is, is in flux. Um, but where's it going? and uh, why. But to give a little bit of historical context on distribution, it, you know, when the uh, motion picture industry began, uh, all of the studios owned everything. They owned the stars, they owned the writers, they owned the directors, they owned the, the, the sets, the lots, everything. But they also owned the theatres. It was a vertically integrated system of distribution. So they made a film, Warner Brothers made a film, they showed it in a Warner Brothers cinema. That was it. That was deemed like uh, a monopoly, is that right? A monopolies commission stepped in, Ed, is this right? Do you know your film history? Uh, yeah, that's correct. It was uh, they they stepped in and they forced the studios to break up into sort of separate parts. So the studio production side became its own separate company, and uh, the theatres became separate. So suddenly, it was a more competitive marketplace. Yeah, where... the Paramount decree, I believe it was called, in in the late fifties. So that happened, and then you know that happened. Then films started going on television as well. So that was a different way to see. Uh, films which you perhaps weren't used to and then uh, that kind of carried on until the the kind of late 70s early 80s then we had home video we could watch film at home on a terrible medium uh, VHS <laughs> that no one liked but everyone put up with for way too long I found and then DVD and now we have pretty much everything we can watch things on demand we can watch anything you know how we want it really um, that's uh, quite a big change in quite a short period of time and we can watch um, things kind of instantly through streaming services and um, there's a you know day on day is is increasing as a, as a distribution uh, thing gimmick I want to say but no I think it's more than that do you think that um, film distribution now 21st century film distribution is finally kind of turning the corner rather than just kind of anxiously kind of looking ahead thinking oh there's a corner coming up uh, I think it is for some companies, but I don't think that the industry as a whole has kind of embraced that idea yet. I think you can see with smaller companies that ha or for, um, for for independent filmmakers who sort of self-finance and put stuff out through VOD or, or make deals to kind of put stuff up on Netflix, they're really embracing it because I think they're realising that eventually sort of smaller films are going to get squeezed out of 
multiplexes, which they are pretty much out of now, and, and you know, art house cinemas, there's only so many screens you can really put onto. So I think it, it gets to the point where you have to embrace it, otherwise there's no way for you to get your film out there. But I think the, the biggest problem is overcoming the stigma a little bit, because I think there is still a little bit of a stigma around VOD-only releases or VOD-exclusive releases, purely because, you know, for years the idea of something being a direct-to-video or direct-to-DVD film was, you know, something to mock and deride. Hmm. Um, it's interesting you should say that the smaller films will be squeezed out, because earlier this year, um, two kind of... Uh, relatively well-known filmmakers by the name of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas um, did a... Have you heard of those guys, Ed? Um, Spielberg. He directed uh, Jewel, didn't he? He did, yes. He did... Um, Whatever happened to him? Always, as well. A little <laughs> little film he did uh, back in the 80s. Oh, God, that's terrible, isn't it, always? Yeah, dreadful. Have you ever seen the original version, My Name is Joe? Or A Guy Called Joe? Oh, my name is Joe. Is the is the Ken Loach film, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> with... uh, yeah. I think it's called A Guy Called Joe, which oh, is no. a, with Spencer Tracy. It's a war film. It's it's really really good. Oh. But yeah, Always is a yeah dreadful dreadful remake. Anyway, director of Always, um, uh, Steven Spielberg, and producer of Howard the Duck, George Lucas, uh, gave an interview earlier this year. They were they were they were coming to like, the University of California Film School to kind of give a a kind of a keynote speech to the to the the graduating class and kind of telling them that. You know how much of a great career they've got to look forward to as filmmakers, and they really suck the life out of the room by basically saying, "Film is dead, it's not happening." And Spielberg revealed to the kind of surprise of everyone that uh, his film Lincoln uh, wasn't ever going to. Well, it very nearly became a TV miniseries, an HBO miniseries, because no one wanted to put it out there because the distribution model at the moment for films is open big, open wide and open global and like you know a story about abraham lincoln isn't going to sell in china it's not going to sell in uh, south america it's not going to sell in india but these big markets so you know it came very close to not happening and we're talking about a film directed by steven spielberg um and starring daniel day lewis about abraham lincoln uh, and that's it's, crazy it's especially crazy when you consider when the film actually was released it was a very big success mm. you know it was in terms of Spielberg's non-blockbuster work it was one of the more successful in quite a while it made like 180 million dollars in the US yeah which is more than the actual best winner best picture winner uh, Argo made mm. uh, so the idea that a film that went on to be very successful and you know this is also like goes back to a few years ago when Slumdog Millionaire everyone said was only going to be a DVD release mm. you know it, it just seems utterly bizarre that these films that go on to be really successful and sort of miniature sort of sensations uh, end up uh, you know have come that close to never seeing the inside of a cinema yeah and um, the reason that I kind of said that it went against what's saying about what smaller filmmakers being squeezed out is George Lucas then piped up um, saying that essentially it's going to be most filmmakers squeezed out that his prediction was and you know George Lucas may have his faults but he is fairly good at kind of predicting trends in cinema, certainly technologically. I mean, a lot of the filmmaking stuff that, like technology that filmmakers use these days is was kind of stuff that Lucas was kind of banging on about, um, you know, years before everyone else, and no one wanted to listen to him, but, you know, he was right in the end. Um, but he was saying that, 
he kind of views um, cinema in the future might be like going to the theatre is now you go once a month or once every six weeks and it costs 30 or 40 quid and you see a massive film and it's a big extravaganza and every other film whether it's made by a big studio or not is released some other way I think that I think a few years ago that idea would have seemed insane to me just because of how sort of big it is but I think as a big big sort of cinema is and how big you know the the big chains are mm. but I think you know as year, the years have gone on and stories of people basically saying you know fuck it to the cinematic experience because it's so poorly like policed in terms of you know there's no such thing as ushers anymore mm. you know you go in and you know a lot of cinemas are can be even big like you know the, the Odeon in Sheffield which you and I both know and detest yeah um is like you know a dingy cinema that's dirty and you know the screens are terrible and because it's like a converted car park all the screens have really weird layouts mm. you know like stuff like that it's you know the worst cinema in the world uh but you know stuff like that is is the sort of thing where you think should should i go and see this film now in mm. a cinema i don't like or should i just wait like three months until it's available to rent mm. uh, or buy i think that for a lot of people it's getting to the point where they think you know, is it worth it? And, you know, is it worth me just waiting and seeing it some other way? Uh, or just, you know, pirating it, which obviously is another pro- part of the problem. Yeah, a lot of this is, a lot of the distribution changes as and kind of, uh, if anyone wants to argue for a decline in cinema attendance, kind of theatrical attendance, I mean, I don't have the, the statistics to hand, but one of the reasons that people are saying this it is that people are getting closer to the cinematic experience at home uh, mm-hmm. people have massive TVs now um, if you're watching a film on Blu-ray it's pretty much the same definition as watching it on DCP which a lot of film uh, cinemas projecting now um, a lot of people have at home high definition projectors um, so it's kind of it's you know the lines are getting kind of blurred without wanting to sound like Robin Thicke um, but yeah it's it's um, kind of leaning more towards it and stuff stuff like Netflix that you can um you can watch a you know a film in full HD on on your widescreen TV at home um and in a lot of cases they've got films that are done that way that aren't out on Blu-ray and things like that um I mean do you think that that is the future that everyone will be it'll be streaming everything uh I think that it will become more and more prevalent and the idea of streaming will become the norm for most films and if they can work out a viable economic model for sort of online rental that's like cheap and effective because at the moment you know stuff like youtube and uh youtube and itunes the the logic behind sort of downloading and renting is you know that you all kind of get a few mates around and Mm. you'll pay like 16 you know over here like uh sort of 12 to 16 dollars but you're splitting it like three or four ways so it's cheaper than going to the cinema mm-hmm. um and you know, i think once that then that will be the main thing but conversely you know there will always be people who want to see something on the big screen like given the choice i would always want to see a film on the big screen because i like going to the cinema and i like the immersion of it i like the fact that you go there and you're not constantly distracted by things mm-hmm. which is a hard which is the the part of it that's kind of hardest to recreate at home because you know you will be just distracted by the stuff going on around you that you can't control and i think that in the case of um sort of cinema what it would have to be is that cinemas would have to be you know like theaters or like the opera where they try and give you something of a luxury experience mm. 
maybe not kind of get making doing stuff that's like 50 to 100 dollars or whatever you know for like a premium theater ticket but you know charging say i don't know like 15 20 quid and then but guaranteeing that you will have just like the best possible experience that you know sort of like what the alamo draft house do over here Mm. where you know they have that they provide food and beer you have a sort of hardline no texting rule even if you're madonna you know, it has all of these kind of things that are designed to give you an optimum experience as opposed to just kind of like paying overpriced for a shitty experience. Yeah. I'll tell you what I would throw in. Like, I would have a sofa with footrest mm. and uh, as many white chocolate mice as I could eat. I think that is the dream of all mankind. Yeah, I think that, that would be... space travel. <laughs> yeah, that would be in my manifesto for distribution change. Um, do you, like you mentioned earlier about there being perhaps a um, stigma. I was going to say stigmata there. That's completely the wrong thing. That's when you bleed out of your hands or you're making it up. Yeah. Um, there's a stigma about you know releasing stuff as um, kind of VOD, but like it has been done by some fairly high-profile filmmakers. I mean, Steven Soderbergh's done it. Uh, a couple of times, I think he did Bubble was one, wasn't it? And Full Frontal was another. Um, and uh, Paul Schrader did it this year. Um, you've seen The Canyons, which I believe is not a fine piece of work. No, I mean, it's got some stuff to recommend it. I think Lindsay Lohan's performance is surprisingly good in it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's more because, you know, <laughs> we've, come used to, we've become used to her being an absolute train wreck. Mm. And. Uh, but also because everything else about the film is kind of so drab and dreary and almost impossible to like mm-hmm. you know I think that her performance is kind of the only part of it that I remember fondly everything else about it was just sort of a desultory and, and drab experience but you know it's a film that Schrader wanted to make outside of the studio system for whatever reason mm-hmm. I think um, it didn't help that he teamed up with Brett East, Easton Ellis who I do not Mm. Oh right, okay. Um, uh, I, do, uh, is there anyone else who's done it? I mean, um, is there any other filmmakers that have that have uh, gone that route, and what, how, what kind of success have they had? Um, I think Abel Ferrara did it last year. A film called Four Forty Four: Last Night on Earth, which was a film he made about the apocalypse, which went straight to um, VOD. I think that. Um, I want to say that Francis Ford Coppola's Twixt got that release. Um, over here because I don't think it got a particularly big theatrical release apart from when he did a roadshow bit where it was him and Dan Deacon going around remixing the film live which sounded crazy and insane but Mm. it didn't get a sort of traditional release schedule Um, I think what you can see there is sort of three fairly high profile directors who have kind of been forced to the margins because they want to make small personal films um, with varying degrees of success Mm. Uh, and kind of seeing that as something like the only viable route, even though you know, in the case of you know Coppola, he made The Godfather, which is one of the most successful films ever made. Mm. You know, I think there's a it's it's interesting to see how that has happened and sort of the homogenization of, sort of mainstream filmmaking. You know, all that save the cat kind of stuff that people go on and on about um, has forced people who are a bit more idiosyncratic to pursue. A method of of releasing a film which until fairly recently was just looked down upon and you'd think they would never in a million years choose to do willingly Mm. Um, 
an example of someone who did do it willingly um, is a favourite of the show, Kevin Smith. Um, he released his film Red State, um, kind of independently self-distributed it. Now, um, I can't think of too many examples of like, kind of in the recent past of people self-distributing. I, re- I remember Lockstock actor Nick Moran self-distributed a film, where essentially he just went round went around the country kind of banging the drum for this film that he really believed in and uh, other than that you don't really see too many examples of it but Heads Were Turned a couple of years ago when at Sundance Kevin Smith made a big show which is unlike him uh, a big show of um, saying he was going to you know blow the roof off this mother being the industry uh, and then it turned out he was just going to take a film around on a road show showing it to people who would have come anyway charging them three times what it would cost to watch it in a cinema ordinarily and you know basically doing a bit of his brilliant stand-up um, along with it um, now Smith was onto a winner there because he has got that that inbuilt audience that will come and see anything he puts out and anyone who's seen any of his films since the first one um, will realise that the quality of his films haven't been good and they've all been relatively successful so he had that inbuilt audience of people who would come out and see it no matter what it was like and they would pay for the thing so he would make his money back on the budget just by doing that tour and then after that he said um, you know uh, distributors put it out on DVD do what you want with it you know, stick it out in the cinema if you like. I don't give a shit. I've made the money back and I've proved it works. Now, was that genius or was that just hubris of an idiot? Ah, a little from column A, a little from column B. I think it would have been genius if he was like an unknown filmmaker or a relatively obscure one. Mm. I think the fact that he has a network, a huge sort of network of fans, you know, a podcast network and all this sort of thing behind himself means that he kind of was set up in a way that it basically couldn't fail mm. whereas I think if it was someone who was brand new and said I'm going to do this kind of insane thing and I'm going to like trust that people will find it and that I'll be able to publicise it through the internet and just off my own back mm-hmm. I think that that would be a that would have been more impressive and a genuine sign of this working because it, it, it comes around again to the whole sort of Radiohead releasing their albums online and saying you know you can pay anything you like and saying that that's a model for people putting out music and it's like you can do that because you're all millionaires mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know it doesn't matter if you people pay like a penny to download in rainbows because in or 99 or you or 50 pounds because you know you've you're fine you know and they'll there's enough people there that even if they hardly pay anything you'll still make money off of it mm. and you know in the case of kevin smith you know having insane obsessive fans who'll be willing to pay whatever it was it was like $200 a ticket or something to go and see his films is you know is something that frankly almost no one could do you know no one else would really be expected to get away with that no and knowing him no one else kind of would um, mm-hmm. he leads a, a very charmed life um, in terms of kind of unusual distribution methods um uh, this year we had uh, a really kind of exciting event in, this, in, the, fen- in the sense that uh, British director Ben Wheatley, whose films uh, we admire, um, well I certainly do, because um, uh, my wife is in 50% of his films, <laughs> um, um, yeah he released his new film, A Field in England, um, a um, British Civil War set, treasure hunt, 
mushroom fest is probably the best way I can describe that film but he released it in a very interesting way in the sense that um, it was released uh, on every platform on the same day all at once uh, it was on film 4 at like 9 o'clock in the evening that day it had been released on blu-ray it was on in cinemas at, on that day um, and it was available on iTunes and various other VOD platforms now just the fact that it was Ben Wheatley and he's a filmmaker with a little bit of buzz about him and the fact that it was very unusual that made that a real event and uh, I don't have the specific numbers but I remember reading afterwards that it was a big success people did buy the DVD they did download it they a lot of people watched it and um, a lot of people went to the cinema which was the surprising thing I didn't think anyone would go to the cinema but people did but they added value to it they had weekly going around doing Q&A's and the stars off doing various bits they released it small and they released it interesting and they kind of um, you know it was a success in, in that one that said the film did cost uh, fuck all I think it cost less than 20 grand to make so is that the limit of of that kind of model do you have to have a film that doesn't cost anything you couldn't do uh that for you know uh 80 million blockbuster yeah i think i mean you you could do it for an 80 million blockbuster i think if you were you took a very long view on making a profit because you know because films have such a long life and they exist so long outside of the the initial release mm-hmm. they can eventually make their money back you know even sort of something like Cleopatra which was a huge flop when it came out made its money back eventually with sales for like home media and stuff mm. and I think that would be the the most likely thing is if you made an 80 million dollar film and then released it on VOD chances are it would only make its money sort of 10 or 15 years down the line mm. uh, but you know you'd have to be fairly sure of your sort of financial standing to be able to take that sort of a long view where I think most which basically almost no one is I think uh, if you were sort of a billionaire who didn't really care about it you could do it I think most studios would not would not be able to stomach that sort of uh, loss on their book that sort of immediate loss for a long term gain on their books yeah and I mean that's that's just it like the studios don't take the long view do they they and I mean we've seen it get worse and worse and worse since the 80s since the kind of the blockbuster was born in the kind of mid to late 70s and through the 80s the kind of where it was kind of crystallized but we've we've seen the the strategy of releasing big films as open big open quickly so it really gives your film a shelf life in cinemas of two weeks now I read a really interesting article um, uh, online just before we came on uh, written by a filmmaker called Chris Jones and he was saying that um, what people don't look, the people are looking at distribution all wrong. And if you look at a film that's, you know, got a two-week shelf life, that's got all this buzz build being uh, kind of built up for it, uh, you know, it's being hyped, and you know, it's all this advertising money has been spent on it, and then it comes out, and all you have is obstacles in the way of seeing it. You can only see it in cinemas. Why isn't it available? on as many platforms as humanly possible in every single kind of um, region, every single thing that that means that as many people as possible can humanly see it. Why is it that we put up these kind of weird arbitrary goalposts to try and kind of constrain it and you really limit its success? My point being that like if you, like the Lone Ranger for example, uh, didn't do particularly well, did it, Ed? 
Uh, no, I think if you in terms of budgets, uh, it made a small loss in terms of like production budget because it cost like two hundred and fifty million. I think it took two hundred something million worldwide. Mm. But in terms of actual sort of marketing and everything like that, it lost just a shed load of money. Yeah, I mean, but like, would that film have been more successful if there would have been less obstacles in the way of people seeing it? Like, would it have been if there was no staggered release, if there was no region geo locking, there was nothing in the way of seeing it on this day? This film comes out, and you can watch it on your phone, you can watch it in cinemas, you can watch it, you can go out and buy the DVD. Would that have made a difference to the, the fortunes of the Lone Ranger? Um, it probably wouldn't have made done enough just because you know the reception to it was fairly hostile, mm. uh, but I do think it probably would have been less of a loss if more people could have seen it quicker because I think the staggered release date definitely didn't help it because yeah. it opened in America first American critics savaged it and then it by the time it came out to the rest of the world it had the stink of failure on it yeah. and sort of regardless of the quality of the film like I've read some very positive defences of it and some some people have said that they, they really enjoyed it it was on Quentin Tarantino's top 10 of the year so far list mm. and you know it was one of those things where you think, well, if there was a, it, because it had this sort of sense of, but because the, the the general consensus was that it was a bad film, then fewer people were willing to take a risk on it. Whereas I think if you had said, okay, you can see it in the cinema for this amount, or you can sort of download it for less to watch it, you know, on your computer or on your sort of smart TV or whatever, then I think probably more people would have seen it, and you know, then maybe there would have been a greater groundswell of people recommending it. At the very least, you know, someone who was like, I'm not going to pay, you know, sort of 10 quid to go and watch it in 3D in the cinema might have said, well, I'll pay two quid to watch it at home. Yeah. And that would have been, you know, that's two quid that they didn't have, mm. but which they would now have. So, you know, it, it would be, it would probably have lost less, but not have necessarily but turned around and become an actual success. Mm. And the, a, a second point which feeds off from that point that Chris Jones was making in his article was if you do put these obstacles in the way of people seeing films um, and uh, if you don't give it to them how they want it and um, at a price that they're happy with aren't you just asking for your film to be pirated? That's a very good point I do think that that's something that's really hurt you know pretty much every um, old media form in terms of you know music and, and film and I think that's one of the reasons why television seems to have not been so badly hurt by piracy through things like Netflix and but for also embracing their own on-demand services mm. by essentially saying to people okay you don't have to watch this um, live when it first airs but you can um, but you can watch it at your leisure as long as you watch it mm. and you know so and through net Netflix has obviously built a very successful business model off of that idea of you know it doesn't matter when you watch these things as long as you watch them yeah, as you you don't have to watch house every episode of House of Cards on the first day. You can if you want to, but you know as long as you eventually watch it, then they're perfectly happy with that, and it justifies their investment. Mm. And it was very interesting to see when I mean, we obviously talked at length about Breaking Bad last last week, but the the decision that Netflix UK came up with to screen the episodes like twelve or fourteen hours after they air in America, so people in Britain waking up can kind of watch them literally as soon as you that's that feels like a watershed thing to me that feels like a a coup for netflix but b 
um, why not just do that? I, you know, I remember when that was announced because it was announced fairly late. It was only announced maybe about three or four weeks before the first episode aired, and I just remember seeing Twitter and Facebook just explode, saying, "Thank you, Netflix. I don't have to illegally download it now." Yeah, I think that you know there'll always be people who downloads download stuff illegally either through um, through sort of lack of money or just from lack of scruples. Um, <laughs> but I think. I think in in many cases, if you offer people a legal way of purchasing or, or or obtaining something at a reasonable price, they'll happily pay because you know I would much rather say watch you know Breaking Bad streamed through Netflix the day after it airs than sort of have to download a torrent of it, which might not be of a decent quality and might take ages. Mm. You know, and I I'd have, I'm happily happy to pay eight dollars a month for that privilege. Yeah, it, and it's it's kind of weird if you include it onto something that's got much more into it. I mean, a lot of people would have uh, subscribed to Netflix with the kind of month free trial just mm. to watch Breaking Bad or just to watch a show, and then from that point discover loads more stuff to watch. And you know that seems to me like this kind of great way of distributing. You've got this kind of portal, and up until recently, it's just existed to show stuff that's available on home media anyway. But now we're going beyond that and we're getting exclusive content and we're getting content that's available before home release. I mean, I'm just, just saying it to you now about if if I decided to watch Breaking Bad, um, like obviously it aired in America on, on TV, you watched it if you've got cable. In Britain, it's not screened. If I hadn't got Netflix, I, I my choices are download it illegally or wait, what, two months until the box set comes out? Now, you know, that sounds like, you know, without wanting to use the over overused phrase of all time, first world problems of having to wait a couple of months to see a TV show that doesn't really mean anything. Um, but, like, why is there the obstacle there when there doesn't really need to be? I think you're also seeing companies really embrace that idea in terms of allowing... Uh, previewing new shows by making the pilot or the first episode of a new season available before the show actually airs. Mm -hmm. I know Showtime have done that a lot. Showtime made the pilot of Homeland, which has been their sort of big signature hit of the last few years, available, I think, something like a month before it actually started airing because they realised that giving people the option to, to check it out ahead of time was a good way to build buzz and awareness because people would be like, hey, you should watch this. And then it didn't cannibalize the ratings of the show when it aired originally and the same thing happened with the pilot for masters of sex it was just a way of building buzz and excitement for the show i think it's it's really interesting that they're they're kind of catching on to the idea that one of the best ways to get people involved is to give them a measure of control over when they watch something mm. which is kind of damaging to the basic idea of television which is that shows go up at a certain time and you watch them at a certain time <laughs> Um, and then that's when you sell the advertising for. But you know the internet has so destroyed the the base the the network model, and so destroyed the idea of sort of watching things in a linear way. But not just the internet. You know, sort of the idea of box sets, hmm. the idea of people, you know, waiting to hear reviews of a show and then buying it and binge watching it. You know, which is I know a lot of people have done that with things like obviously Breaking Bad, Mad Men, um, and lots of HBO shows has kind of just kind of completely destroyed this 
uh, original model uh, for a lot of people. I mean, I was talking to um, Dave Holloway, Dave Medlow on Twitter, you know, friend of the show, and who um, who was saying that he, about uh, a- Marvel's Agents of Shield mm. about how he is sort of giving up on it because he doesn't like it. And I said, well, I'm still kind of enjoying it. I'll see how it goes. And but then you know he said, well, you know, I can't be doing with adverts. I'll just wait and see if it turns around, and then I'll get the box set. And I think that is something that a lot of people just do now. It's like, mm. why would I watch a show at a certain time dictated by someone else when I can just watch it whenever I want? Yeah, spinning off of that point, uh, one of the main stimuli for this episode about distribution uh, was the keynote speech that Kevin Spacey gave um, to the Edinburgh Television Festival earlier this year. It was a very, very interesting speech, widely reported, um, talking about kind of um, antiquated uh, models of distribution and also production, because the two are inextricably linked. And obviously he is at the forefront of that in the sense that he has been involved very heavily uh, with the House of Cards. Now he was saying in the in the kind of speech that they did shop that show around um, various networks, and we're talking about David Fincher. Uh, am I right in saying an Oscar-nominated director? Uh, yes, multiple Oscar nominations. All right, okay, there we go. Um, and uh, Kevin Spacey, a double Oscar winner. Um, and every network, every single network, said. Well, we'll back it if you make a pilot, and that's what they were prepared to do. They were prepared to throw their money into one episode, in which they were requiring the writers and directors to sell the entire con, uh, the concept of the show and the complexity of it, and um, you know all of it, the characters, the relationships, and everything. Sell that in one forty-five minute episode, and maybe they'll give them the money to make, like you know, to make the rest of them and the only people who said that they didn't want to do it that way was Netflix they according to Spacey said we've looked at the figures we think our our membership would be into this show off you go um, and that is kind of like a hugely um, significant shift isn't it because the whole pilot thing Obviously, it's a very American thing. We don't do that in Britain. We just kind of they just commit to a show, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But the pilot um, system in American network television um, is that really has it got any like lifespan given this kind of new model of uh, TV production? Uh, I think that there are people in the industry who probably want to move away from it just because it's it's bad business in some ways you know i think the the figure he gives is that networks spend somewhere between four and five hundred million dollars a year on pilots the vast majority of which never see the light of day crazy you know they 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 get shot some of them get picked up for you know the 13 episodes or you know some will get just this like a six a token six order or or, you know in a very rare situation shows will get picked up straight away like uh, the Michael J. Fox show, I think, is the most recent example of that because it was a big star and NBC are desperate and they think, you know, if we have this very familiar face, then we can commit to 22 episodes straight off the bat. Mm. But, you know, almost no shows kind of have that. It's always we'll film one episode, see how it looks, and then we'll see if we want to make more. And I think on in some sense it's good in terms of quality because I think if you committed to a show without making a pilot to see how the concept would work, 
then you would run the risk of a lot of very bad shows being made mm. because you know the, the the bad part about the pilot system is that some of those shows never get seen and it's a waste of money the other part the the plus side of it is that a lot if the show is terrible you don't have to the, the networks don't have to sit there with the sort of heads in the hands for 13 or 22 weeks mm. thinking i can't believe we put this on the air and having to kind of stomach the indignity of it and 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 but yeah i think in terms of quality it's that i think the the pilot system itself is the reason why the pilot episode of most tv shows is usually not the best mm. except in situations where the show is terrible uh, and so the first is just like the best shot they get because with the pilot you're having to crap do so much busy work of having to establish who everyone is and the premise that you often lose sight of actually making it good television i think you can see that in like genuinely great shows like you know 30 rocks pilot is pretty funny but not great um apart from tracy morgan screaming i am a jedi <laughs> which is a a classic moment of comedy and you know the but usually it's a case of you know everyone's so busy just trying to set everything in motion that the the show isn't that satisfying in its own right um and you know that's kind of counterintuitive because the pilot's meant to be the thing that's really enticing it should be the best thing but, but, you know, it often isn't, and it's a really weird system they've got. And while the Netflix system of just straight-out committing resulted in Hemlock Grove, which by all accounts is an unbelievably terrible TV series that probably could have been done with being guided a bit more, mm. but Netflix obviously, as Kevin Spacey joked in his speech, they didn't have an office to provide notes to people on <laughs> House of Cards. So there was, there was no way for them to interfere. Um... But, you know, they had to just sit there and let all 13 episodes play out and they had no other sort of recourse other than to let that happen. Uh, it does mean that, you know, that you can have a first episode that works as a first chapter as opposed to being like, OK, here's everything you need to know about the show straight off. Mm -hmm. And then the second episode is, OK, for those of you who missed the pilot, <laughs> yeah, this is the same. This is the same stuff repeated, um, and you know, just kind of making sure that the people who saw the pilot see the same thing they liked, you know. And that's where the, I think the problem with the pilot system is that so much it leads to a lot of repetition and a lot of the show kind of stuttering as it's trying to get going. Yeah. Uh, whereas you know the Netflix thing is just kind of like okay, we'll let this all play out and you know see where it lies, and it's a very risky strategy, but. Obviously, for, for Netflix, it paid off pretty handsomely. I didn't know that Hemlock Grove had been was so kind of derided. I, I just generally thought that the response was mixed. Has it really been that bad? Uh, maybe I've only seen the bad reviews, but I saw a fair few ones. The one on... Uh, I would really recommend the one by Zach Candelan on the AV Club website, which was a, a, a an account of the entire 13 episodes, which he watched in about a day or two days. And it's just... Uh, un unfettered bile. Right. Okay. It's a, it's a it's a lot of fun to read. Right. Okay. Well, I I was instantly put off by the involvement of Eli Roth. Yeah, it's not a great endorsement. No, no. Um, Spacey in his speech as well did go on and kind of uh, back up what we've already said about if you give um, control of the distribution to the consumer that you offer them offer it to them in a way that they want it and uh, for a cost that they can kind of get down with then you know people are less likely to kind of steal it um, that spurred us on uh, to ask our loyal audience and our kind of um, followers on Twitter and Facebook and various other platforms um, a hypothetical question, um, which is the dream, really. It's a dream I have, which is what if 
there was uh, like a service where it was um, anything as you release films theatrically uh, as it is now but as soon as it's available on home media it's available on this this hypothetical HD streaming service and also on this hypothetical HD streaming service is every film ever made <laughs> um, obviously with like you know anything that's like lost to the ether not there but every film ever made is on there um, how much would you be prepared to pay for that service Ed how much would you be prepared to pay for it um, probably sort of, uh, probably about £30 I think yeah I think so yeah because I think if you had access to absolutely everything one, one it would mean that I wouldn't have to pay for separate services which I do now you know, I pay, not much, but I pay for both Hulu and Netflix, which mm-hmm. are two separate things. And, you know, it would also save in terms of the, the occasions when, like, a few a few months back, I decided I was going to fill in the gaps in my knowledge of Woody Allen films by watching sort of the run of really terrible films we made in the early 2000s. And I rented them all from iTunes because I couldn't find them on any of the streaming services. Right. As, but Whereas if there was, like, a service which basically said you can watch anything... And you know that you don't have to pay extra to rent. You know, I think thirty would be more than enough to kind of cover that. Yeah, I I think um, that's definitely a reasonable price. I mean, uh, we've had some response on Twitter. Uh, Dave Coleman, editor of No Ripcord, uh, popped in and said, you know, between fifteen and twenty quid, and says he happily pays six pound for Netflix and ten pound for Spotify already. So you know, why not if it's got everything on there? Uh, Paul Coughlin said uh, his limit is ten pounds. He's a cheapskate. Um, and um, have you had any other any other uh, people pitching in? Uh, those were the only two that I saw. I think other conversations I had from people were about the you know I I asked some people about the the question of you know if this service existed would people uh, be would they just stop going to the cinema you know if you could have all this stuff at your beck and call at home would you stop going to cinema and the the overwhelming response I got from people was people saying no I would happily go and watch a film at the cinema because I like the experience I like uh, as Ray Winston said I go for the experience <laughs> did he say that yeah, it's in that terrible advert. He, you know, there's that advert where he's walking up the cinema steps in all different theaters. Oh, and he's yeah, talking, of he's, he, he's doing doing that advert for the experience of going to the cinema in a cinema. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is so redundant. It's amazing. Yeah, I find it strange that, like, you know, I I quite like films and that, but like, if I think about it, like, the overwhelming majority of films that I've ever seen have been on the small screen. Like, like, mm. it's got to be. 95% of the films we've ever seen has been on a small screen and that's you know, I've seen a lot of films at the cinema but like nowhere near the volume that I've seen at home I think a large part of that is you know both you and I we like watching new films but we both go back and you know we want to see all the classics we want to see these kind of great uh, body of work that's been created over the last hundred years and there's so many films and if you're waiting for all of them to be like shown in a repertory screening or whatever you'd be waiting a pretty long time and you yeah. can't see any films and they're not going to re-release Mannequin no matter how how hard uh, I uh, petition for it yeah sending them um, severed Mannequin foots is not the best way to go about this <laughs> we've had this conversation on many occasions yeah, uh, but you know it's it, the case is that if, you know certainly for me growing up the only way for me to watch sort of old films was you know if they happened to be on TV or if you rented them from the, the video shop uh, but so now you know obviously we have more chance of 
watching these films because of the screening, because of DVD, which is obviously a superior media to VHS, even though lots of people have misguided nostalgia for VHS. Mm. And uh, I think that in a lot of cases, the, the whole thing about it is that, you know, we can watch all this stuff at home. Why shouldn't we? Mm. You know, is that, that, you know, it'd be nice if you could see all of these things in the cinema, you know, as they were originally intended, projected with, you know, perfect sound and everything. But the fact is that there's sort of no, there's so few opportunities for that to happen. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, if, if a classic film that I'm a huge fan of comes back and is, is available in the cinemas, like, you know, a few years ago, uh, I think it was View, had this series where they put on stuff that, you know, they put on, like, The Wild Bunch, they put on... Um, uh, the searchers they put on all of these kind of old classic films that are all showing on like a weekly basis and i saw a bunch of them and there were films i'd seen before but it was amazing watching them on the big screen you know the searchers on the big screen is an amazing experience mm. and so i'd happy to experience them but i i'm glad that i saw it first at all yeah if it was on a small screen you know it would have been good if it had been my first experience of it but i also would have spent like 20 years not watching The Searchers which I think is a terrible thing mm. yeah I've never seen all of The Searchers I've seen most of it uh, I know it's the end of it it's pretty amazing yeah I can imagine do you think that like the video shop is clearly kind of dead uh, I mean blockbuster, blockbuster chains are, are kind of thinning all over the world uh, and there can't be that many of them left uh, I know there are a few but um, is physical media um, on its way out as well. I think that uh, Blu-ray won't die out, but I think we might reach the point where it becomes like a specialist medium, mm. which it kind of was always in, in initially. I mean, like when DVD first came around or when Laserdisc existed, the idea was, you know, it was for a select group of people who could afford them. Mm. And, you know, it was for kind of for connoisseurs. And I think now when you know something like the criterion collection which puts out these kind of amazing packages you know with these great extras and essays and like books sometimes like whole books related to the film all kind of put out that you can that you can kind of get the best possible experience i think they will continue this and they'll continue to thrive because people will want to see those films in the best way possible but it will become a case where the people who buy physical media are like people who buy vinyl now. Mm. They're kind of people who want a very specific experience and a very specific relationship with their art. Whereas I think most people will be like, I don't want to fork out sort of thirty dollars or twenty quid or whatever. So you might as well just you know subscribe to a streaming service and watch it all cheaply that way. Mm. Is it is it the film that people won't get if it goes to all streaming? Because uh, you know we might reach a point, we will reach a point in uh, the next few years where, with internet speeds getting faster, and uh, we will be able to watch films in perfect definition on you know on your own TV at home, streaming it. So is it just those extra the embellishments that people will want to pay for for think, physical media? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if they make the if the quality becomes so high that that's mm. you know the main selling point then I think that will be the thing. People will, you know, want to buy the extra stuff because that's kind of the incentive. Mm. That's the value, that's the extra value you get from it. Right, okay. Because, I, I mean, I'm thinking, like I say, I'm I'm moving house and kind of packing all my stuff up and I think, 
uh, do I really need all these DVDs? I mean, and I don't have a big collection by a lot of people we know's standards. Um, but I mean, I've just got like a maybe a few hundred. But like, do I do I need? I mean, some of those films I've watched, but I've never actually watched that copy of the DVD. I mean, I've seen the film before loads of times. Um, there was a, the, a, an occasion the other day where um, 48 hours I watched it on Netflix rather than reaching over to my thing and putting the DVD in because it, <laughs> it was just there so you know I kind of maybe that's just my problem like you know maybe I'm just kind of not as materialistic as I used to be yeah I kind of find that with DVDs is I buy far or Blu-rays is I buy far less than I used to Oh, definitely. Since, yeah. since streaming became something that was sort of easy to do and cheap to do, you know, it used to be that I would buy this stuff all the damn time, and you know, I'd go to FOP and buy DVDs for a fiver, or you know, get sort of go to H and B and just buy stuff in big offers. It'd be like four for twenty pounds, and I just think, well, I've not seen this film, but why not just kind of take a shot on it? Whereas now, I think I've not seen this film. I'll just stream it and see what happens, and it's not cost me extra. Uh, and I think you know the only films I do buy on is you know sort of Criterion stuff where you're 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 getting sort of kind of all that extra stuff and that's and you know it's really really cool kind of features for it. Yeah, I think that like I'm I'm kind of at a point where like I got a, a Blu-ray player for Christmas. Uh, I'm always I've always got my finger on the pulse of new technology, um, but yeah, only got only got one at Christmas for the first time and then. Uh, I remember I got some uh, gift vouchers as well to spend, and I like gift vouchers at Christmas because you have to spend them on stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Like you have to buy, yeah, they were like HMV, I think, or something like that. And I had to go and I had to spend them on, like, you know, you have to. It, it was rude not to. Um, so I went and I looked at all the DVDs and I thought, well, do I want to buy this film again? I, I think I was looking at something like, you know, Big Lebowski or Jaws or something. And I was like, you know, this is a film that I've owned on video, and then I got rid of those. And I now own it on DVD, and I got rid of those. I'm like, am I really going to buy it for a third time on Blu-ray? And then I got to thinking that, like, you know, do I really want to be doing this every ten years, just like buying the same film? Um, when is this really necessary? It's not like those films are ever going to disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I guess it depends on whether or not we think that technology will get any further if there is a new format in development that's going to supersede Blu-ray mm. or if we've reached the kind of the moment technologically where there would be no profit in developing another uh, in developing another format because Blu-ray hasn't taken off in the way that people had kind of hoped it would you know it's the sales are going down across all physical media and Blu-ray never got kind of the jump start that it wanted because the point at which it was starting to catch on was the point at which the global recession hit mm. and people suddenly thought maybe I should eat and not pay for you know high pri- overpriced um, home media mm. and I think that that's kind of the key part of it really is that for a lot of for, for you know for most people buying blu-ray is not an essential thing when you can just watch it online or you can you know sort of download it or whatever yeah, and so they so there's there'd be no so Blu-ray doesn't isn't popular enough to need superseding by new technology. It's just going to all go streaming. Mm. So in that in that case, it becomes a question of you know do you want a physical copy of it in the best possible quality just so that you've got it? Yeah, you know. And that's I think it. for some films, I would make that you know like I've got like the Royal Tenenbaums or you know stuff like that. I I'd happily 
kind of own a physical copy of it because I love that film and I love having it, uh, you know, in sort of amazing, crisp quality with cool extras. Mm. But for 90% of the films I've ever seen, I would happily just not own them on... Well, not happily not own them, but, you know, I, I, I would not be bothered about not owning them if I can watch them some other way. Mm. And it's like there was a, a massive leap in quality between VHS, which we said before again was a, a format that no one wanted, and DVD. I mean, the novelty. I kind of think, what was I watching the other day? I watched. Um, do you remember Warner Brothers DVDs came in that kind of cardboard case with a little clip that kind of folded out? Yeah, I used to have Blazing Saddles on that. It's yeah. a terrible format. I, I think I was watching. I was watching uh, Three Kings, and at the start, there's an advert for DVD, and it was like. Watch it with great quality, uh, amazing sound, in the correct aspect ratio. And I'm just like, yeah, we spent years watching stuff in pan and scan with really shitty sound. Uh, with, like, you know, your the picture was at the mercy of your video player's tracking. Um, but the, so the leap to DVD was huge, but I, I'm not... I mean, obviously, I'm not a cinephile, but like the 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 gap between Blu-ray and DVD is not big enough to make me think I'm going to replace my entire uh, DVD collection with Blu-ray. Yeah, especially because a lot of Blu-ray players do kind of uh, Im- they kind of upscale improve. Yeah, they upscale. I was trying to think of the correct word. Yeah, they upscale when you put your DVD in there. So it won't be Blu-ray quality, but it will still look better than just a regular DVD. Mm. And, you know, it, the difference is sort of less noticeable unless you're super techie, which yeah. I don't think either of us really are. No, no. And like I say, I, the most of the films I've watched in my life have been on video. So I was thinking about this the other day. There are, there are films that I've never watched in the correct aspect ratio. Like, I've never seen Citizen Kane or anything other than video. Do you know yeah, I mean? that's not really the best way to do that one. Yeah, and I'm sure there are other like yeah like um, oh god, what was the other film? Uh, I, until I went to see it at the cinema, I'd never seen Casablanca on anything other than video. Um, so yeah, it's kind of it's crazy that that's the way that like and if I was a filmmaker, it really pissed me off that that would be like the way that people have been watching the films, especially like if you if you see. Um, uh, what did I watch? I watched um, City of Hope, the John Sayles film, which is criminally not even available on DVD. So we watched it on video, and it was so badly pan and scanned. And obviously, we've been spoiled by having stuff at least in roughly the same right aspect ratio. Um, that it was like borderline unwatchable. It is kind of uh, a concern of mine, and I am genuinely, genuinely toying with the idea of getting rid of all of my all of my DVDs apart from apart from those special ones you want to keep but like I mm-hmm. could definitely I could definitely slim it down by 75% I reckon um, I'll keep my Sound of Music Blu-ray thank you very much um, with regards to television and distribution like I say it's, it's a kind of a slightly different kettle of fish but the Netflix model um, that we've been enjoying and that has been a very notable success with their exclusives they've had Hemlock Grove apparently accepted um, but um, you were telling me before we went on air that uh, the kind of shift towards what Netflix are doing has uh, riled HBO, who um, have been kind of murmuring that they might take their HBO Go service elsewhere. Yeah, because you know uh, HBO Go has been around for a few years, but the whole thing about it is it's tied to a cable subscription. So if you 
don't have HBO, which is you know part of premium cable packages, and so it's quite expensive. Mm. You can't access HBO Go, which means you can't access. And HBO Go is a really cool service because not only does it have all of their current shows, it has most of their back catalogue. It doesn't have everything. For some reason, the Larry Sanders show isn't on there, and I don't understand why. Mm. It's probably some sort of weird thing with the home distribution rights. But like, they have loads of stuff on there. And But unless you are willing to pay to kind of shell out sort of hundreds of dollars a month for cable, or, like me, have parents who will do that and then give you their code so you can watch <laughs> HBO Go, which is the easy way of doing it, um, then you have no way of accessing that service. And with Netflix kind of becoming a big sort of rival in some respects to, to HBO in terms of sort of out and out saying that they want to take down HBO as the biggest subscriber service in the US, mm. which they're very close to doing. I think they're both around about 30 or 40 million subscribers. Uh, then I think uh, HBO have kind of started making rumblings that they may make it a separate service that you can just pay for separately and so you can have access to all that stuff without having to pay for the cable subscription which would be a big shift and would make them i think a lot more competitive against netflix because obviously some of the best shows ever made aired on hbo go and a lot of them just aren't being accessed by people i was reading a really interesting article from a tv and film professor um earlier in the week and i can't remember who it was for life me but he was talking about how for the people that he teaches, who are all who are people who've grown up in the golden age, they haven't actually watched things like The Sopranos because they're not on Netflix. Mm. And like, there's this whole swathe of these really influential dramas. You know, they haven't watched Six Feet Under. They haven't. Most of them haven't even watched like Sex and the City, which was a big populist one that you would expect them to have seen. Mm. And for a lot, in in a lot of cases, the whole thing is, you know, if it's not on Netflix, it basically doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in terms of the development of the TV medium, it seems HBO Go kind of almost owe it to sort of the writers and showrunners of the future to make that stuff available to as many people as possible. Because at the moment it is limited to people who have already seen it, which isn't the uh, the best system. Yeah. Um, do you think that if HBO Go did have a separate streaming service, that would impact their cable subscribers? I imagine it probably would lose them a few because I think that there are a lot of people who sign up for HBO in order to have access to that back catalogue mm. and to have, you know, this, you know, HBO Go is probably not the prime reason they sign up for HBO it's because they want access to all like, you know, those big great shows but I think, you know, it would probably, a lot of people would think well, if I can just watch them online, why should I pay for like $20 or whatever why should I pay $100 for the cable package and they can just cut the cut the ties but it probably would gain them a lot of uh, subscribers from that great swathe of people who pirate um, Game of Thrones which is the most downloaded illegally show in the world Mm. you know if they only cut a fraction of the people who download the show illegally then they would make just like huge amounts of cash and get loads and loads of subscribers so it just makes sense for them to kind of move into that realm and offer it up as a separate service yeah it's it's similar to that game of thrones argument is is very similar to how it is over here because in in the uk that airs on sky atlantic which um they always push you can watch with your sky go subscription but you, you don't get a sky go subscription unless you have a sky subscription and they separated the sports element from that I know, so you could basically do a kind of pay-as-you-go sport. So, like, if you wanted to watch the weekend of football, for example, you could pay 
you know whatever it was for it but I don't think you can do it for like a whole season of TV which is seems odd to me yeah it does see I think the idea is it's kind of tied to a sort of old and well-established way of doing business which is that you charge extra for a small number of people to pay for this stuff whereas it's increasingly getting to the point where there's just a huge untapped market that they really should be going for mm. and that is uh, sort of streaming and for people who have basically said oh you know sort of a whole generation of people who just grow up have never bought a cd Mm. you know or have never bought a dvd because stuff is available to be streamed or you know they download stuff illegally you know i think for that generation it only makes sense for them to offer this stuff as streaming only because otherwise you're losing quite a lot of business yeah yeah so if we've learned anything about distribution both of film and television it's that the model is uh dying uh slowly and um the people who are kind of have the power to change it are kind of too scared but it's going to happen anyway and by which point they'll probably lose out and the whole thing will implode on itself but there are people like you know netflix we were talking about you know and people who have embraced the sort of the vod sort of thing who are like trying to stay ahead of the wave or, or riding it and you know they're obviously benefiting from their their sort of courage and their bravery and their kind of uh just kind of fuck it attitude which i think is that you know time and time again if you see these sort of stories of networks like hbo who didn't make original dramas until they did oz and then took a huge gamble on the sopranos you know the whole reason they were able to become successful was they just went well you know why not take a big risk and i think that you know you, you're seeing the people who are the risk takers benefiting hugely right now in terms of you know these new forms of distribution and really taking advantage of them so if we've learned anything about distribution <laughs> of film and television is that most people in charge of distribution are scared to follow the risk takers and they won't until it's too late yeah pretty much yeah. but they'll they're those organizations are so rich and huge that they'll lumber on for quite a while before they completely fall apart but mm. they are <laughs> they are slowly falling apart those monoliths of uh, ancient ways um, Ed I have to say I feel like that was quite a hybrid episode I feel like we, we actually talked about some stuff in serious ways in that yeah we got deep we did and like, I feel like we kind of made solid arguments backed up by uh, reasonably well researched facts yeah I think we've sold out Mm, we have changed um, so if you've enjoyed the show uh, we hope you have uh, please um, uh, subscribe to our show on iTunes we love it when you do that we love it even more when you kind of uh, leave a little star rating and a review that would be very nice if you did uh, you can find us on Twitter now we're at SRS underscore podcast um, and uh, we're on Facebook as well so you can go on there and you can like us provided that you do um, so when we come back with the next show which we still don't know what it is um uh, we'll see you then. Hope you enjoy it. Until that point, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.